0: welcome 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 to the tipsy tennis podcast i'm in brooklyn i'm at home in my backyard sitting with a fort green local we had a good tennis uh hitting session right before this we did uh, we're gonna see each other next week we might even play against each other next week at the 50 usta eastern sectionals he's representing the metro region i'm representing long island so we'll see how that goes but other than that he has his own podcast as well called The Torre Show, where he uh, interviews prominent black figures and a couple tennis players, which we're going to get into as well. I'm very interested to hear good. You know, those those uh, encounters and really good guy from, you know, the, the, the period of time that I've met. I've met him. For, it hasn't been that long a few weeks, a few weeks, he saw me uh, kick some butt at the Fort Green tournament. You sure did.
1: Yeah. You came into the Fort Green tournament and made some noise, and people were like, who's that guy? <laughs> and the sound of the serve was like, who's that guy? Boom. <laughs> and you beat somebody who we think of as really good, who's really good in our community. Mm-hmm. So to beat him was like, oh, who's who's that guy? I know, right? So yeah, so people were definitely like, what's... What? I don't know. I've never heard
0: of them before. Funny enough, grew up in Brooklyn, like 10 minutes away from Fort Greene. I just haven't been too much time, spent too much time there, because like uh, it's tough to get a court. You know? It is. You got to get up early in the morning. Well, well,
1: we'll we'll help bring you into some yeah. of our situation, but it yeah. is it is tricky to get a court.
0: Yeah. But without further ado, I would like to introduce Toure from the Toure Show. Thanks. What's your last name? No, we don't use that. We don't use that. <laughs> uh So the first question that I like to ask uh, any of my guests when they first come on, how did you get started playing tennis?
1: My dad called on his way home and he said, I'm bringing home a really special gift for you and your sister. She's a year younger than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking it's gonna be a Batman car or something like that. (laughs) And it was this little wooden green tennis racket. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you said it was gonna be something special. How old were you? Six. Okay. And my sister was five. And it was the most special gift he ever gave me. But obviously at the moment I was like, what is this? Um, but he was way into tennis. Mm-hmm. It was the '70s, and America was having a rise in the number of people—a precipitous rise—all throughout the decade sure. of the people who were playing tennis and watching tennis. Um,
0: Can you? Who are some players that were playing? Who did? Uh, sorry to cut you off. Yeah. but Like, what are some players you were watching when you were a little kid when you first got introduced? You know, going back to you know.
1: Matt, I watched McEnroe, Borg when McEnroe lost and then when he came back and won we loved McEnroe um Connors Chris Everett Martina Navratilova Mm -hmm. um trying to remember that early period I mean Steffi Graf I'm thinking she's like later like I'm a teenager by then but like definitely McEnroe and Borg Connors Yannick Noah Connors um you know, Ely Nastasi was like, oh, he's a terrible person. He could never behave like Nastasi." Of course, Borg was just this epic dominant figure throughout mm. the 70s, into the 80s a little, bit. the 70s he was crushing um, and doing it looking great. He's, you know, he just seemed super cool and chill. So, yeah, we started taking tennis lessons at this club. In Dorchester, called Sportsman's Tennis Club, which is kind of like a known thing. It's mm-hmm. a not-for-profit club. It's a it's a whole thing of a mission of like we're gonna take black kids from the city, teach them how to play tennis, so they get college scholarships. Mm-hmm. So they, of its time, yeah. So the whole thing was adults pay so kids can play. Mm-hmm. So the summer camp would be like a hundred dollars, so you can play, you know, nine to five every day um, for the for the kids, but then. The adult courts were not terribly expensive, but just the structure of it, it was not for profit. Mm -hmm. It was not meant to be caking up, and they weren't caking up. They were giving lots of kids the opportunity to learn the game. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was there, like, every day, Mm -hmm. like, after school. All summer, I never went to any other summer camp. There was really never any other after-school activity that mattered, that we took seriously. Like, Mm -hmm. it was just... Always, all about tennis, Arthur Ashe came to visit our club when nice. I was little. There's a picture of me and Billie Jean King from when I was 10 <laughs> when she came to visit. Um, so, you know, we were just, like, serious about getting better, going to tournaments, making noise, and so you could maybe get a college scholarship.
0: Did you get a college scholarship?
1: I did not get a college scholarship. I They helped me be the best player I could have been at that age.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I went to Emory. I had spoken to the coach before. Mm-hmm. I was like twentieth in New England in That's the eighteens. Really That's
2: really that good. Was
1: okay. You know, you're certainly not you're not winning any tournaments. You're not getting into any semifinals to get to twentieth, right? But mm-hmm. like you know it was it was the best that I could have done. Um, I spoke to the coach. There was a little tournament for the new recruits. I played mm-hmm. the number one recruit in the first round of the tournament, one set tournament, I lose 7-6. I'm like, okay, this is good. This oh, is good, okay. right? I'm, I'm, I'm showing it. I'm like neck and neck. In the consolation pro- round, I play the number two recruit, right? You oh, know, wow. He lost in the first round, right? I lose to him 7-6. I'm like, this is good. I'm like, I mean, it would be better if I had beaten them. And I'm like, right there. Uh-huh. And he cut me. And I was like so upset. It was so devastating. Um, and, you know... Partly, I think it was the universe saying, like, there are other things in the world. Because it was all about tennis for me. Yeah. And I wasn't going to become a pro. I wasn't going to become a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. And that time away from the game allowed me to open up and think about other things that became sort of the crux of my career. Um, But the core of it, I I came back to the game years later because I was walking up the hill toward the Four Green Courts. With this guy, and we this guy was hitting on the court, and he was one of the better players of, at the area at the time. Mm-hmm. And I said to my friend, who never never played tennis his life, I'm actually better than that guy. And he was mm-hmm. like, and he knew he's like, I never saw you pick up a racket. He's like, bullshit. You're not there. And all he said was bullshit. And I was so insane that I was like, I will show you. And I took like oh, yeah. six months. I got the racket. I got drilling. I found a partner. I got. Back to hitting, and five after six months, I still didn't know him. I just went up to him and, was like, hey, I want to play you. And he's oh, like, okay. like, you, like, you're like nothing. But yeah. he played me, and then, um, it, it, next thing you know, I'm beating him for love. And right. he's like, shocked. Like, somebody came out of nowhere. And then we became friends. We started playing all the time. But, um...
0: kind of like me at Fort Green, pulling up out of nowhere. Pulling up <laughs> out of nowhere. <laughs> you're so proud of that.
1: Good for um... you.
0: I resonate with that story a lot because for me I grew up uh when I first started playing tennis, it was at Prospect Park Tennis Center. Nice. You know Winston?
1: No. I used that. to be over there a lot probably before that. I you know Gary who Gary. Gary, he's got a Russian last name. Mm. He's big on Instagram. He grew up there and mm. like made it to the pros and now mm. he's a big time coach. Nice. And I used to hit with him when he was ten. Okay. So, I was around Prospect Park, like, a lot, like, 20, 25 years ago.
0: I started maybe, like, 20 years ago. Back okay. like when they had, like, the trailer. Yeah, and yeah. Like all that kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 So, my brother started playing. Uh, he, I have an older brother. He's uh, three and a half years older than me. Um, and it was just kind of, like, an after-school type of thing. But then... And he, he had tried basketball, soccer, but, like, for some reason, tennis stuck. And... I was always on court. I was probably started going on court when I was, like, maybe three years old. And uh, watching for, like, the first kind of year, and I'm looking at at everything. So when I picked it up, I was, like, I got quick pretty – I got good pretty quick.
1: Because you'd been watching.
0: I was, like, watching and studying and looking at how he he plays. I remember, actually, the first time I was, like, maybe ten years old, maybe maybe even nine years old, where – uh you know when they teach like beginners they you know they do like arms up, stand to the side, swing up over the shoulder okay. basic stuff. And that was how I was always taught. But I saw my brother was hitting with topspin and I was thinking like I want to hit like that. And so you know I have I have my lesson the coach he just starts feeding me balls uh and I started like trying to hit with topspin and as I I was hitting everything into the ground and into the net. I wasn't getting the ball over. But he saw what I was trying to do and like I feel like a good coach would have, like, stopped and, and you know, uh, corrected me. But? But he didn't say anything. But he saw what I was doing, and I was, like, kind of figuring totally it out crushed. on my own. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that was, like, a, a part of, like, my origin story. I was playing juniors. Uh, I played some, like, uh, junior ITFs. Uh,
1: really? Yeah.
0: How high did you get in the East? In the East, it wasn't too great. I think I got I got to, like, maybe 50. Okay. In the east okay. when I was uh, east is tougher 18. than
1: most sections.
0: Uh yeah, I funny thing so I want I'll tell you the story a little bit later but I played a tournament uh when I was 14 years old against Alex Kavetchevich. Who's that? He's uh he's like 120 in the world right now, American oh, player, shit. one-handed backhand. He played Djokovic in the first round of French Open this year. Okay. He, he made his Grand Slam debut this year. Okay. Uh so and I wanted to go pro. Yeah. Uh, I made the decision it's like it's not it's not worth investing like like trying to go pro like I was just thinking go to college a little bit more stable if anything, I'll play tennis in college. And so I went to Fordham and, and my wife went to Fordham I, nice yeah. And I was trying to like walk onto the team. I was like talking to the coach. I was, my brother was playing on the team on the varsity team as well
1: and they didn't let you walk on.
0: No and because and I was even talking to him maybe my junior year already. You're like, yo, I'm looking at Fordham. I want to, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. He ended up recruiting one guy who was ranked lower than me. Recruiting, not walk-on, recruited. Who was ranked lower than me. And then another guy who has never played a tournament ever. But he, he just had, like, a really good recruiting video. Uh, so I was, like, I was devastated. I'm, like, that was the number one thing I was looking forward to right, in college. Right, right, right. And, but I love tennis so much that I didn't stop. I, I joined the club team. Uh, my freshman year and then uh, basically the sophomore year, I was like the president of it. I just kind of, I just took it over. There wasn't much organization to it. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I grew up in the, in the, in the, in the tennis world so much that organizing a team like this was like kind of second nature for me right. and everybody would listen to me, respect me. We got to nationals. I led right. us to nationals. Shoot. Uh, and that was like. Such a I think, in my opinion, it was such a better experience than okay. if I would have played varsity, okay, because it was more laid back. I was able to do other stuff i actually- i transferred in the beginning as in the business school, and then I ended up transferring and getting a degree in physics you got a, your college degree is in physics, yeah. And, and if I had played varsity, I would have never made that switch because business w- would have been a little bit easier, less time commitment. Sure. sure. And so I'm just like, you know what? If I'm not going to play tennis, let me dive into something. <laughs> uh, so I dove into it and, you know, things ended up working out, I think, a little bit better. Uh, I got this podcast going. Woo! Uh, you know, and, and it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's everything is about tennis. Yeah. But it's not only playing tennis. It's kind of like a...
1: Who were the hot pros when you were um, coming up? Who I you mean, were inspired by.
0: So, I was like, a, one thing, when I was like 12 years old, th- when I was actually 10 years old, this is 2008, and that's when Federer was on fire. And you had this like, Okay. I, the I, first
1: Federer, uh, when, before Djokovic and Nadal arrived. Yeah. When he's beating up on Leighton Hewitt and Leighton Andy Leighton Hewitt, Roddick, and yeah. Safin, Safin a little bit. Safin. I love Safin. I love Safin. I, I
0: love Safin. Oh. He's, he's such a cool guy. Um, uh, so like what was really cool and very I think very unique for my generation specifically is that we were kids when this was always always happening and like people you you know you've lived through so many tennis eras but like it's the eras that when you're a kid the ones that are inspiring sure. you the yeah. ones that's motivating you to be, become a better player yeah those are always like the mo the the special ones and I got to grow up during the era of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, mm-hmm. which was just—it was so expi- inspiring. Mm-hmm. I remember like going to practice, going to the gym, doing stuff like when I really don't want to, and you know, just hearing like my coach's voice in my head saying like, "What would Djokovic do? What would Nadal do? Are they eating Chinese food and playing video games after school? Or are they you know training and stuff?" I'm like, "Shit, they're training. I gotta."
1: I mean, they're not even going to school <laughs> in a real way at all. They're just playing. All day long, if we could play six to eight hours a day,
0: oh, and yeah, it,
1: like <laughs> it'd be ridiculous,
0: yeah. And so, I wanted to make that switch, I wanted to do that and like play tennis full time. I wanted to go to and my parents were like, No, what the fuck are mm-hmm. you talking about? Um, so that was that's a little bit of what my, my origin story. I don't think I really. I don't think I said that on the podcast yet. There's been like bits and pieces yeah. of it, but that I think that's a more.
1: So your club, t- so your four years of club tennis. Ah, uh, three. Three years.
0: And then I was like the chaperone, and actually I uh, I got invited, I got offered the JV coach position for Fordham Prep. Oh shit. Which, which is on the same campus, right? Using the same courts and stuff, so I might do that in the spring, just kind oh. of like a victory lap. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then maybe work with the club team as well to do some tipsy tennis stuff you've built a pretty good following you've had some fantastic guests on your podcast uh where how did that like get started and like where and the podcast yeah and how and how did tennis ever play like a role in your professional development
1: i mean tennis has been maybe five percent of my writing throughout Mm -hmm. the years but like I love the opportunities I get to write about tennis. Mm-hmm. I wrote, I wrote a story about Capriati when she had won, and she'd come back and won the Australian after she won the Australian Open. Mm-hmm. And the thing that was so exciting there, I was like, you know, you gotta let me hit with you. I hung out with her for like two days in Florida in like nice. November. Like you gotta let me hit with you, like just for the story. And she's like, eh, eh, I'm like, I'm not, like, terrible. Like, I can return your ball. Like, just, you know. And I kept asking, and she kept being like, no, no. We'll see. We'll see. You know, a lot of people would just be like, yes, for the story. I want to be in Vogue. That was for Vogue or whatever. But, like, she's like, we'll see. I don't know. So, finally, at toward the end of our window together, she goes, she said, yes. You can jump on the court with me. I'm like, this is great. Like, I'm going to have this experience. And it was an extraordinary experience. Probably the best player I've ever hit with I think certainly the best player I mean I hit with James Blake once for a couple minutes mm. but he was at the net um, so I didn't really experience his ball Yeah, and the thing that leapt out she's she's hitting it just down the middle so she's being nice obviously she can paint the court however she wants where you would never return two balls but she's hitting down the middle and she's being nice as far as the pace but I'm never late right mm-hmm. she's not hitting the ball so fast that I'm late but the ball is so
0: heavy. With spin?
1: Yeah, like you feel like you're, you're hitting underwater, mm-hmm. right? And it's really working your, your forearm because it's like, I'm like sort kind of forking the ball back because it's so ugh, like heavy ball. And I thought that was really interesting. You can perceive the speed when you're like a few rows back from the court, but you can't perceive how weighty mm-hmm. the ball that they hit is. Um, so that was really really interesting fun
0: fact did you know that men and women use different two du- two types of balls on the on the professional tour uh i don't know if i knew that so uh this is something i learned when i was a ball boy for the u.s open and if you look at the ball this isn't uh this is a jeu de palm ball this isn't a real tennis ball but you'll, you'll get the idea so on the print uh if it was, like, a men's ball, it would say, like, Wilson, U.S. Open. Yeah. Wilson in black, U.S. Open in red. Yeah. And then on the women's balls, it would be reversed. Oh, that's hard to remember. And so, like, I mean, if, as an umpire or, like, as a ball kid, you kind of have to... It's mostly, like, the umpire's job to so make sure they the have women's the women's right ball... It's a little bit lighter. It's a little lighter. It's a le- I think the men use extra duty, dirt, extra duty and the women use regular duty. Interesting. And, uh, and then they exchange... They get new balls every seven and then nine games. So it's seven nine 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 nine, and the reason for the seven is because they warm up with the balls, right? And then they start the match, right? Right. So it's like consistent throughout the entire thing. So Um,
1: interviewed Andy Roddick a couple of times. Mm -hmm. That was really exciting and really getting to see him as a sort of—he was very much a man child. He had a obviously had a man's body, but like you know when you get into like what are you interested in, he was like a big boy. Um, Who
0: else? Interviewed James Without
1: Blake. Eubanks. He interviewed you, Chris was re- Eubanks. Was that recent? Yeah, that was pretty recent. Taylor so, Townsend as well.
0: I'm curious, what are your thoughts on uh, Eubanks right now? Because I've known him since he was a college player. Yeah, yeah. And I, and uh, he's kind of been like on my radar. Yeah. Same thing with like uh, Mackenzie McDonald. I ball played for Mackenzie McDonald. He's like a junior wow. in college. They had curious like it. a ITA tournament at the U.S. Open, so they used the ball kids. Uh, what do you th- do? You think? A guy like Eubanks is here to stay? Or is it just kind of like a quick. No, I think.
1: I mean, I think that he has some fundamentals that will allow him to be a high level killer for a while. mm -hmm. Who knows if it's going to be consistent quarterfinal level, but like, this is one of the great serves in the world. Yes, for sure. And it's a great forehand. You know, and he can volley really well. So, like, there's a lot of serious weapons. And, you know, in the uh, Ultimate Tennis Showdown interview, he talked about getting to a sense of, I belong here, Mm -hmm. right? Where before he wasn't sure. And, you know, when you go into a match and you don't really think you can beat the other guy, like, you can't can't make that go away. Mm -hmm. You can't pile on positive comments but there's a person down below who's like but you've never beaten him Mm -hmm. and like you try as much as you want but you have like but to really eliminate that sort of a voice and be like no no i'm really like it should be normal for me to get to the quarters Mm -hmm. you know like i belong at a high level like when you start to really believe that like deep down like makes a big difference um but that's a big part of tennis i think how you think deep down. If you're too confident that you'll beat the other person, you won't play your best. And if you're certain that you can't beat them, it's hard to get
0: to your best. You need like that perfect like balance between like you need to be confident, but you also kind of need to have a sense of fear, I would say. You think? Because I think the fear is the motivator, is the thing that like is is the emotion that's going to draw the best out of you when you're in, like, fight-or-flight mode.
1: See, I would be physically tense if I was afraid. And I think true, a lot bro. about, like, how to get to the loosest physically that you can. And if you're, like, in the moment, you're not going to be afraid. Because you, you can't lose a tennis match fast, right? It's mm-hmm. one increment at a time. You cannot score two or three runs or points, and, right, and, like, you, it's always a one-pointer, right? Mm -hmm. Every freaking point. Uh, Every freaking game. But, like, I've been thinking a lot about gratitude, and you're grateful to be challenged, and it, like, relaxes you, and it focuses you into the moment. And to not have that other voice at all that, like, is thinking, like, we should beat this person, which is toxic fuel, or this is a very difficult person for us to beat, mm-hmm. which is also bad fuel. Just to just to eliminate that voice altogether, um, if at all possible.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's really interesting. You, you know, you said something that I'm kind of thinking about right now, which makes uh, complete sense, but I never actually put the words to it. You can't win the match quick or you can't lose quick and I think just kind of going back in my head and honestly playing back the Fort green tournament uh in my head I felt like I was trying to win the match too quick Mm -hmm. and which it led to a lot more errors that I wanted like I wasn't you know I was just trying to do it quick and I and that ended up backfiring on me because I had the wrong mentality going into the match uh for any poker players out there if you're playing a poker tournament you can't win the tournament in the first hand, but you could definitely lose in the first hand. And so, you know, it's it's incremental and it's patience and uh, it's being in the moment. Yeah. It's taking point by point. And you know, I think, you know, maybe the fear comes from or like, you know, when people are nervous, yeah. They're thinking about the result. What if I win? What if right. I lose? Right. And it's not always like especially when you're playing somebody that like is let's say better than you, and you have that uh, negative voice in your head, saying like, oh, you know, you shouldn't win, or maybe, or you know, the doubt. But one question that I always ask myself when I was playing against a, a better opponent is, what if I win? Mm-hmm. And just kind of thinking like, it can lead to this, 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 and you kind of you can get lost in it a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I and I I see that I think you see that on the pro tour as well. Like, you'll have a player break out and then everything I think gets like too exciting Mm -hmm. and that could be distracting to for for them being on court
2: one thing
1: I think about everybody's going to play at a certain level for like the first like 20 25 minutes of the match and then your secondary level of cardio will kick in right first 20 25 minutes you're not tired Mm-hmm. Right, And then but then you've done so much starting and stopping and running that you start to get a little tired. So how do you play when you start to get a little tired? and can you maintain the level and the precision versus what the other person is asking of you there? Yeah. right? And, and I, I think everybody drops a little bit at that point. You may continue winning um, or not, but like that, that is an important marker. To not get too up or down about what happens right away at the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. That's I. You know, I just had an idea for for a exercise that you could do with I would say mostly juniors mm-hmm. or uh, even competitive players on the college level mm-hmm. or even pros, but competitive is uh, let's say you know we have all heard like a game. where you're saying is like the first level, second level, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. as a coach to just take a survey you know let's say 15 minutes into practice once they're decently warmed up and ask the player what level do you feel at like you're Mm -hmm, at right now mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and they'll say like one, two, three, whatever and then you ask the player you know an hour in hey what level do you feel you're playing at right now Uh, I feel like I dipped down to like a 2 I was at a 1 but now I'm at a 2 so okay just keep that in mind continue just continue training don't think too much about it but just take acknowledge it okay Uh, ask them again in two hours and, you know, things like that. To kind of, I think it's important as a player to have that kind of awareness to under, to gauge where you're at, not being overconfident but not being too uh, like, uh, underconfident. Mm. Uh, You know, kind of find where you're at and also find to help you gauge the levels of what level one looks like, what level two looks like, Mm. what level three looks like. And And then also tailoring exercises to uh to target those specific levels you're like your level one great we don't really need to do focus too much on that let's say like a you know being aggressive or serving volume whatever it is let's work on level two how do you get how do we work on level two let's do 30 minutes of fitness right before we start to train Mm
2: -hmm. so we
0: start the training we start practice at level two and so now, no, that would be amazing. You're able to that isolate, you know, each you know the levels of to the be able to somebody's play game. when you're
1: tired. Yeah, that would I be. Dingles is stupid.
0: I'll be on it. It's kind it's of a, a great dumb, question. It is kind of a dumb game. I, you know, I've only played it like a handful of times. I'm not really a big fan of it because, I mean, for one thing, you need four players that are on the same level. Pretty much. I mean, um, I mean,
1: if we were when I mean, like you played doubles with us today. Typically, a four green. I don't know how people do it elsewhere, but all of our foursomes of two hours are going to be. We're going to play some dingles and then team singles and then we play doubles.
0: I like that. So playing dingles today, I kind of liked it as a, as the first game that we did. Yeah. It's kind of a warm up. Yeah, it's a transition yeah, into a the other up. games. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: It's not a it's not a main thing, but I'm like it is kind of a it's
0: kind of a dumb game. Yeah, I think that's a great game where like you're just throwing in something new, You mm-hmm. get moving a little bit more. Like once somebody calls dingles, you're running to the net, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. one person should be running to the net. I I think you should. Some people just don't go to the net. Uh, you saw me. I was no,
1: you were. It. You were. Uh, so wait. So with the last, we got rained out today. But on the la- we should memorialize this on the last point.
0: Oh man,
1: of the of our match today, we were on opposite sides. You hit a shot that probably should have been a winner, and I tracked it down and, like, sort of flicked backhanded it, like, over your head into, like, the backhand corner. And I was like, well, that was a pretty sick shot. Like, that, that, you know, I, I did not expect anything to come back from that. And you were behind the baseline and nailed a tweener. Down the line, right? Into, like, the doubles alley. And it was, like... Right, I think you hit hard on the well. line.
0: Right? Uh, I it think was, it, it was, like, on the singles line. It was, like...
1: It was, it was clean. It was definitely hard. It was definitely, like, on the line. And like, we were, like... I, I can't believe I just saw that. I have, that was fucking incredible.
0: I have a confession. Uh, I could have hit overhead on that lob. Mm. I decided to hit a tweener. See,
1: okay... And just ruin your tennis career. <laughs> you didn't ruin your tennis career, but I, I, I hate the tweeter... I hate the tweener because I think that it is it is always a mistake, right? Like you've already made several bad decisions that lead you to there. But like, there's no way that the best option could be to turn your back to your opponent, let the ball drop down to your knees or lower. And hit it through your... Rather than to run around the ball and hit a forehand, or if you're out of position, to hit a backhand. But the thing is, I don't even fully blame you, but tennis media, tennis TV, what <laughs> all tennis channel, whatever, if somebody anywhere in the globe hits a tweener, it will be replayed, you know, ad nauseum, clipped that for Twitter and for Instagram, whatever. So they've made us think... That this is this amazing thing. I'm like, we shouldn't
0: even be doing that at all. Did you see Alcaraz's tweener though against Tommy Paul? To, that, that was I'm sick. Cu-
1: I'm curious, and I think some of the older journalists would be able to break this down, like the history of the tweet, because nobody hit tweeners in the '70s. Can
0: I tell you? Can I tell you the moment that changed tennis history? Tell me. 2009. Yeah. U.S. Open. Semi-finals, Federer against Djokovic. They're in the fourth set. Djokovic is serving Love 30, 4-5. They start playing the point. Federer's wearing his uh his red polo with Nike. They're playing the point, and Federer hits a tweener. You know which one I'm talking about. From
1: way behind the baseline. You know which one I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Down the line, passes yeah. Djokovic to yeah.
0: set him up for three match points. yeah. It was that moment in tennis history where tweener were, got the golden ball. Were people hitting
1: tweeners before that? Yes. So, but when did that? Because nobody the, gave a shit about I it until
0: Federer did that. But I don't think uh, the in the eighties
1: anybody. I don't remember in the eighties people doing it. I remember seeing, not long ago, a video of Connors one point where he is he gets to net three times and gets lobbed. Goes back, hits a forehand. Gets back in the net, hits a gets pushed back, hits a forehand. He's never even thinking. Of, I mean, like you're running in a certain way if, if yeah. early to go for a tweener, than versus where you have to go for a forehand.
0: Um, they had it, different it, rackets, though.
1: It must. It, I, I have to ask my friends. It was it was somewhere in the must have been somewhere in the '90s or the double O's where people started thinking about hitting tweeners. Um, but I don't know what I don't know what popularized it. Oh, Federer. No, no, no! But it was already a thing before 09.
0: I think I didn't. I, didn't, I think uh, it wasn't even called like tweener back then. It was called like in between shot. They didn't call it tweeners. And then, it. like I remember as a kid, like I started hearing like tweener. There's certain some slang. But it's like, clearly tweener,
1: it's clearly free. a terrible choice. You know, if you because also when I'm your opponent, I was I was diagonal from you when you hit that ball right so i had no i had no play on a down any down the line shot at all right but if i'm playing singles and i lob over your head and you set up for a tweener i know exactly where you're going to go your body is structured that there's only one place you can go
0: so i can already before you make contact i can move to the spot where you're going to hit the ball i think i mean i'll be honest i don't know where the ball is gonna go when I hit it sometimes you're it's gonna go right directly between your hips But like, it could be a forehand it could be a backhand I think the tweener is a youthful shot not you said useful or useful youthful. Youthful. okay useful it's a not useful youthful youthful <laughs> it is youthful but it's also useful in uh, on a psychological level because sometimes do you ever like somebody hits a tweener and then you know you, you hit the next shot and it's, it isn't quite a winner and then you, you kind of like start playing the point again you just feel this immense pressure to win this point because you're like, fuck this guy for hitting a tweener. I got to win this point. Right no, now. I feel like it's disrespectful.
1: And it was a stupid choice. And I feel like I should win the point because you made a dumb choice. I mean, any if I get ahead in the point, I feel like I should close it out and win the point, right? So if, you're, if I hit the ball over your head and you've turned your back to me, I am ahead in the point, right? If it's poker, I have 95% chance to win this hand. So you better fucking close.
0: And in the long run, you know, you got the 5% chances where you just knock it out of the park and make a highlight reel. And then the other 95%. See,
1: see, you're doing it because the chance you might make a highlight reel. Not because it's the best choice.
0: Absolutely. No, the best choice was an overhead. (laughs) (laughs) boom. It would have been a great overhead. But you hit a winner anyway. But the one shot that's actually really good is if you know how to lob off the tweener. Because the person always comes to net. Sure. And yeah. so if you could try, if you can get good at lobbing it back, I think that would be a, a That's very hard. useful... I'm anti-tweener in general. What about underhand serve? I mean,
1: okay, I wouldn't do it because I like my serve. Mm-hmm. And I think that I would... Losing a chance to hit an overhand serve, I think that would be a loss. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I did not start the point the best way that I could. It's a reasonable tactic. You know, you might just throw away the point.
0: I think it's useful if, like, like, if you have, like, Nadal, who's standing 20 feet behind the baseline. But who does that in the amateurs? Nobody does that. Nobody in amateurs. On the pros, when they're serving 130 miles an hour. Yeah. Medvedev, he stands back.
1: But nobody at our level is standing so far back that you're... Now, if you're not fully paying attention... You might get a slow start on it, but like it's 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 hard. I, I feel like it's hard. It's you're really risking that you're starting the point
0: at think, a bad
1: in a bad position. I think
0: at least at at a lower level, you need to have a really good serve. Yeah. To be able to like polarize that range, because if your serve isn't as good and you're a little bit lower, then you're, you know, you need this to be a little bit uh, wider gap. And I remember that when I was playing against Nick, I was bombing my serves 120 miles an hour 110 just bombing it to the point where he yelled out holy shit why, why am i playing john isner <laughs> he said that and, and so like i hit i hit i remember i was playing i hit uh the game starts i hit an ace out wide i hit another ace out wide or down the tee i hit another ace or like a you know he, he barely touches it i'm up 40 love and i look to my friend who's looking on the side i'm like Yo, should i should i hit him with the underhand serve right now after serving three bombs? Dude, that would be disrespectful. <laughs> I didn't. I ended up, you know... I respected him too much, So, but if it was, like, somebody I didn't know... He
1: definitely I would... told me after the match, the guy was serving 110 on the line, so I... Well, he's exaggerating. The person was nuts. He's serving very... fast. He said he's serving very fast. No, no, he really meant 110.
0: It's a big problem. Did you see the video of that yet? No, I gotta get that of video. Of the match? Me. Yeah. No. That's, that's gonna go on YouTube. <laughs> Gonna you know, make make some <laughs> some highlights of that. Big th- I play oh guys this was so Nick AKA Big Three on Big Three tennis Not on Twitter. Twitter yeah he's got a uh, 26,000 followers. I uh... <laughs> shout out love you Nick. He's featured in one of my in one of my v- Should videos. Should get him on the pod. He is he's he's he might be the uh, I have one guest after this and then I'm gonna try to bring him on. Should. Sure we gotta, we got to set up a time, and he doesn't even live far from here anyway.
1: When the first year that James Blake was hot at the U.S. Open, I had a media badge. So that means you can walk around in the tunnel, like areas where players might go. Over and over, I had this experience where I would be, let's say, 20 yards away from a player,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they're like, oh, hey, and they're lighting up like, oh, it's James. And then they get close and be like, oh, it's not James. So when we finally met, it was like, "Oh my God! If you, I've been getting that too. Oh my God!" Um, he's a super <laughs> nice guy.
0: I'm huh? not gonna lie; you kind of look like uh, Eric Andre.
1: A lot of people say that. Yeah, a lot if, of people say if, that. Funny enough, look, I
0: saw he was on your podcast. He as You well. and
1: I had the same thing. We ran each, into each other in Brooklyn, and he was like, "Yeah, I get." I, people definitely have said to him, "You look like Toure, and people. Have, definitely said to me, like, oh, my God, you're so funny. I'm like, <laughs> okay, sure, okay. But he's cool. I love him. Um, I mean, yeah, I went to Roddick's house um, late in his career and just, like, hung out with him for, like, a day. And we're just, like, sitting on the couch, eating yesterday's pizza, watching steve videos, and, like, just talking about... Tennis and life and this and that and he was fun. He was like a big boy, like a grown-up boy. But, um, but he's great. He was totally cool. I'm trying to think, who else have I covered? Um, I mean, I've covered other people, but not in a, I'm Trying to think of. Well, yeah. I did a story on that was actually really interesting. I did a story for Tennis Magazine that I was really proud of when I was growing up used to get that big that big book that t- talked about what was going on nationally I never made it to nationals mm-hmm. but I wanted to see like what's going on the kids who make it to nationals so the, in so when I was in the tens number one 12 and under in the country was Al Parker Jr mm-hmm. and then he was number one again in the 14s which happens sometimes but usually kids start growing and things start differentiating and then he yep. was number one again in the 16s. And that, like, never happens, right? And then, again, in the 18s, he was number one. So tank, it was a tank And I was like, holy shit. And then he went to UGA. And then I never heard anything of him again. And I was like, what happened to Al Parker Jr.? Because he seemed like a surefire pro superstar. Because he just dominated American tennis his whole junior life. And I went to Tennis Magazine and talked about him. They did not remember him, but they were excited for me to go try and do the story. Mm-hmm. I wrote Al Parker Jr. a letter having no idea what he would say to a tennis magazine journalist saying, I want to talk to you, right? He might be like, I hate tennis. Get away from me. He might be sure, like, I have no, what do I say to this person? But he was very gracious. I, mean, I remember spent a lot of time trying to strategize, mm-hmm. like, what do we say in this letter? He's very gracious. He's like, sure, come down and talk to me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, met his parents, spent time with him. You know, he's in financial services. Nobody in his world knows he was a superstar (laughs) tennis player. And he's doing great, you know, and he's married and life is great. But, you know, we talk about, well, what, what, he doesn't play at all. What happened? He had a, I mean, part of it was that he had a back injury at UGA that never fully healed. That kind of sucked away some of his love of the game. But really, like, when he was in the juniors, it was a communal experience. He knew all the other guys. They would hang out by his mm-hmm. mom's van in between matches. And it's like the group, the camaraderie. You see people you know, at tournaments that you like, and you vibe with them, and you have a good time. You know, college gives you some of that. Pros gives you none of that.
2: No,
0: I I mean, some people, especially on like the ITF level, they'll get like a have like a team four or yeah. five six players will all travel together yeah split travel expenses yeah. ho- to like hotels and stuff like that if you're if you know people
1: but he's on the ATP level yeah and he's like this is very lonely Um, you know outside of playing tennis it's kind of boring mm-hmm. this life and he talked about being in Asia at a tournament there's like nobody in the crowd somebody either his opponent hit a kick serve it hit a rock in the service box and jumped over his head and he was like what am i doing <laughs> this is not it and he quit and i don't think he ever even broke like 300 but like it the heart wasn't in it the joy that he came that he got from the community and the camaraderie of the juniors had been lost mm-hmm. and he was like i'm done and he left and he Created a whole other life that was really, you know, that's really fulfilling for him. Um, But it was really, you know, it's really interesting for me, just as a journalist, because most stories, the person is handed up on a platter, right? Mm -hmm. Vogue got the opportunity to do Capriati, and they asked me to do it, right? Rolling Stone gets access to Roddick, and they choose me to go do the story. Mm -hmm. This, I had to, like, figure out, how do I find this person? How do I ask this person, like, can I come... This is a good twenty-five years ago. It's so when communication
0: really. was not as easy as it is today. No, I
1: couldn't email him. It was definitely before email. I wrote wow. a letter and mailed it to him. Um, but I was, uh, you know, I loved that whole that whole thing. That was exciting. Yeah, I think for, I, I mean, like living in New York City, I have gotten to know John McEnroe. Like mm-hmm. if I see him he will stop and talk to me. Like, mm-hmm. I, he, you know, he, he probably remembers my name, but he knows, like, I know this person, I should talk to him. Mm-hmm. I'm like, and I had a John McEnroe life-size cutout <laughs> in my room when Why? I was growing up. I uh. watched, as a, kid, as a kid, as a teenager, I watched McEnroe, <laughs> he was my favorite player in the, okay. when I was in the juniors. So to, like, know him I've interviewed him. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen him at his club. I've seen him out in the t- we were at this Kanye show mm-hmm. years ago. And I, so I'm sitting in let's say row 3 and John and Patty are like like the row right behind me, like at my shoulder. And Lenny Kravitz is like right next to them in the <laughs> row behind. Wow. And at one it's a much longer story, but at one point <laughs> Kanye went on this ridiculous rant about the fashion world not respecting him, or whatever. And my wife was there, so I can do- I can assess this true. That John McEnroe said, Torre make it stop." And I'm like, <laughs> that he knew my name, and that he could like you know, you like you can you do something here? Like you know him, right? Like, it obviously there's nothing we do, but just like. Oh, my God, like John McEnroe. I mean, we were chit-chatting and laughing about Kanye the whole night, but, like,
0: oh, my God. That's cool. What's fucking crazy. I played uh, in uh, December of last year or two years ago, something like that. I I was playing a UTR tournament at uh, Randall's Island. Mm -hmm. And some of the UTR tournaments are Mm -hmm. co-ed. It's just Mm -hmm. based on rating. Mm -hmm. So in the first round, I played uh, Victoria McEnroe. That's Patrick McEnroe's daughter. Okay. She's like I think she's like sixteen or something like that. She good. She's solid. Okay. I mean, she know you know she's she was good. I was like playing. I was like, I think I won the first set like six three or six four. I wasn't like going like too hard because it was also. I'm like a twenty three or twenty four year old guy who can. Wait, sleep. how old are you? I'm twenty five right now. You're 25. Yeah, how old do you think I was? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't think you were that young. <laughs> and so, like, I could still like, I'm, I could bomb like, you know, 120 ball yeah. per hour serves. But I was like, I was just playing, just making a match out of it, trying to hit a lot of balls, rally a lot, yeah. you know, so I could also uh, just play more. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was in the in the beginning of the second set. I was, I think, I was up like one zero two zero. Yeah. I sprained my ankle. I like lean one side. She hits it that way. I try pushing off. And then, really bad, but the ego inside of me is like, I'm not gonna lose to this 16 year old girl, so I ended up finishing the match. I was just then. Now I started hitting you know like big serves and just kind of like smacking the returns. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't really like walk altogether, let alone run. Uh, I ended up winning the match, but then I told her, I'm like, uh, I'm like, it. I can't play tomorrow. Right. Just put in the system that you won. I don't really care about my UTR I was playing it for fun it was a prize money tournament I don't really I don't really give a shit on like if I win or lose unless there's prize money on the line I don't care about my UTR or anything like that and then I, I ended up taking like it was a bad sprain I was off off of it for like three months and I didn't start playing tennis for like five or six months oh
1: god that would be a nightmare and it was the bruising
0: was like all the way up like my calf
1: I mean was, I play every day I would, it, it, to not play would really bother me. So, it, God forbid, I had an injury where I couldn't play for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. That would be really hard. I mean, like, I, I need it every day.
0: I get a little bit, I get a little bit, like, uh, stressed when I don't play for, like, a certain yeah. amount of time. It's yeah, like, right? I just need to go out, move, and, and yeah. just, because, and I, one thing that I love about, tennis court or this is like for any athlete or uh any artist or anybody who who anybody who has like a thing yeah that they do a passion yeah when you're in the zone yeah the entire world is uh, disappears when you're doing that thing that's how i feel when i play tennis
1: that was my obsession as a kid of getting in the zone and reading about that and what did it mean and how do you get into it and I mean, and there's times when you are super focused. You're still going to lose about 50% of the points. Even mm-hmm. you win the match, you're going to... I mean, like, for you to win 55% of the points in a match is a lot. Yeah,
0: I think is yeah. at, like, 52 career. Yeah. And he's Federer.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, so you're still going to make some mistakes, you know, and get beat on some points, you know, even if you're playing at your best. But, you know, just... <clears throat> just, just meeting the ball feels so nice, mm-hmm. right? And just, like, just doing the th- all the things correctly, and the ball on your strings, you know, and, uh, you know, when somebody hits it really hard, and you can just friggin, like, return it just as hard, and, like, mm-hmm. you know, you're right in the zone of that, of that shot, that of that moment, like, I don't know about the overall zone for a whole match, or a whole set, but, like, I'm, I saw you, I got ready, I was right on it, you know, like, hit it where I, like, that is exciting mm-hmm. to me. What,
0: when I was playing uh, one of the matches, when I was, I was struggling in my match that I lost in Fort Greene. Gushu Uh Feldman.
1: Oh, Brent. Brent, yeah, Brent yeah. beat me. Yeah, He's a great player. We were player. supposed to
0: play each other if you won, if you won. Uh, yeah. I know,
1: I know. This would have been uh, a very different interview.
0: It would have been, and then I was, <laughs> and then I was trying... Uh, if I had won my match, I was going to play Dylan McKenzie, which I'm, I'm tight with him, and that would have been a fun match as well.
1: If you had won what match?
0: Uh, that quarterfinal match against Brent. Right. And I would have played Dylan. But if
1: it had been me, then you, been you wouldn't have won. So then that's all. It would have been whatever.
0: <laughs> we'll see. We'll see next week. We'll see, we'll next, see week. next week. We'll see indeed. Um, but uh, one thing. So my one of my friends was watching that match. And he could see I was, like, struggling. I was not moving well. I was getting frustrated. Yeah. And then all he said was, it's only you. What does that mean? I'm playing against the ball. Yeah. Of course, you know, there's a player who's hitting the ball. Yeah. But if you zone in on yourself and just understand it's just me and the ball, it's kind of like what you're saying, like, in that moment. Yeah. Each individual shot, you know, uh, he kind of, like, he said that to kind of change my mentality yeah. in the match, which yeah. just started to work. It kind of, I was like, okay, you know what? It is only me. Just play, try to play every ball that the best you can. You know, moving your feet, setting up. Were you or, doing
1: that? Were you really trying to hit every ball the best you could?
0: I was no, no, no. And, and and that's why I lost. And and part of it was, I think, uh,
1: you seem to be wanting to win the point very quickly, or then you're like, fuck it,
0: that, yeah. So I like, mean, that's what I said first earlier. First two
1: shots, you're like giving it your all. And if the point didn't end because of your first two shots, then you'd be like, in that match, you'd be like, oh, well.
0: That's how I played against Nick. And fortunately, and I, was, I was hitting my shots. And if it Brent, it didn't work. No. But Brent's very consistent. He's a very good player. Something I got to take back to the drawing board. But not a great serve. If he did not...
1: You know, there some of the guys are very aggressive. I think you're a very aggressive player. You want to mm-hmm. end the point. You want to make me miss or hit a winner. Mm-hmm. Some guys are very defensive. You know, Brent and Nick both are, and I think they would admit, they would agree, they're very defensive players. That doesn't mean you're a pusher, and that's nothing against that. Like, a, a great I'm talking about like a great, serious retriever who's mm-hmm. going to run down all your shit, hit it back in a way that's, like, tough for you. You know, he's not going to hit a winner, but he's not going to give you free points. He's not going to make unforced errors.
0: Sounds like Nadal.
1: Sure, I mean, it's the, Nadal is perhaps the king of that, although Novak is pretty he's much a defensive good. player. And Murray. Yeah, I think Roger tips a little bit more toward he wants to be a, offensive and create the situation. Um, but, you know, there's different guys approach the game, I mean, I think it's in your spirit, you can't, you can't make yourself an aggressive player if that's not in your spirit, and, you know, if that's who you are as a defensive player, like, you know, it's it's a lot to deal with, it's hard to deal with a really good defensive player.
0: What would you say your style is?
1: I'm aggressive, I want to try to end the point, and I'm trying to become more to accept, like, a neutral situation. Like, I've pretty much got to hit this cross court. He's standing cross court. Don't try to hit a winner. It's okay. You can just hit it to him. Make him hit four or five shots in a point. That's very hard for most people. Just, uh, I didn't even really challenge you. I just asked you to hit four or five balls in a point. Moving around a little bit. Like, that is very hard for most people, especially if you are playing at a certain level of pace. Um, because of when I was first learning the game, I still play too low to the net, and I'm trying to learn to get higher over the net. But, um, yeah, it, it's very aggressive. I kind of want to take the forehand and put you in a shitty position. Mm-hmm. to where you're going to miss or you're going to make it easy for me if I'm doing what I want to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw you were like, you had a really good uh, angle on your forehand.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You,
0: were, you, were, you were able to pull it out and wide. You know,
1: I, never, I never feel... Well, I've been working a lot on an open stance forehand, which allows you to go wider mm-hmm. and have a sharper angle and to be more closed on the forehand Uh, backswing than I've ever been before, which gives you a lot of topspin. But I feel like I've been thinking a lot about feet, right? And, like, Mm -hmm. thinking about how you place your feet first before you're thinking about your hands. And really, you never really miss. You aim wrong. The ball's going to go wherever you set up. Mm -hmm. If you missed, you know, if the ball goes out, you... It went exactly where you, your feet and the face of your racket were pointing. Mm-hmm. You just pointed in the wrong direction. Oh. Um, so it gives you some, it, it gives me a sense of comfort, feeling like if I think about my feet and I set my feet up angled in this direction, you know, you get under the ball, you get over the ball, it's gonna go in.
0: I, I completely agree. Uh, what I always tell like the beginner, intermediate, even advanced, they don't need it as much because they they put in the mileage, but. The easiest way to improve your tennis is to improve your footwork. Yeah. Is to be being able to set yourself up in the right position. Because yeah. there are times where I'm like, I'm playing with somebody, they're missing a lot. And they're like, you know, they're like doing shadow swings. And I look at them and I'm like, look, I promise you, it's not the stroke. Yeah. Your stroke is fine. It's your feet. Yeah. You're not set up. And if, if I got you like a top junior, a top college player, and a top pro... And you and you fed them some balls the right feet. to them. They're all going to look like professional. Yeah. At a slow pace, but it's as you start to speed it up, uh, the points. Uh, it's just when you start to speed it up, there's more power, more speed to it. Yeah. The pro is able to set up much quicker and is able to get himself into that same position. Yeah. To to you know get the the, the, the best shot, uh, and it all stems from the feet. Yeah. Core preparation. If you're late, if you're not leaning in. I think a lot of beginners, they struggle.
1: When you look at them and you see how many steps they'll take for a given ball, mm-hmm. it's kind of insane. It's way more than what most amateurs would do. Pros. Yeah, the pros. Do you see the stat that 75% of American amateurs think they could get a game from a professional player mm-hmm. in like a two or three set match? 75%.
0: I'm
1: like, that, you're insane. You could not.
0: I think the only people who are getting a game is maybe some five 0s No, One. no,
1: no, no five zero. I think I get a is game. Is getting it? No, you cannot. First of all, I'm talking about
0: well, okay, top
1: eight hundred in the world. You're not getting a. You're not breaking his serve. Period. Oh yeah, for sure. So but you're down. My to, serve. You're down, But you're down to half of the games that yeah. you uh, you have a cha- even a chance at.
0: I got six service games.
1: I, you, I mean, you have a very big serve, but if I'm top 800 in the world, your serve is not bothering me, <laughs> right? And, and you haven't served to me, so I don't know how you are. I have a friend who serves very hard, but his ball goes straight. So I know where, so from the crack, I know where it's going to be. So I can return his serve because I'm like, your, your ball goes straight.
0: One thing that I love about tennis, you could you could always find ways to improve. Yeah. And so there's a few tweaks that I made to my serve recently that really helped me especially against like Nick. What did you do? When I t- when I toss the racket up or when I toss the ball up, all I've done from what I was doing before is instead of coming here, yeah. I'm coming here.
1: Yeah, that's huge. That's that's important. And
0: not yep. only and it's not only about you the toss and rotation. then twist. Uh, I toss. Yeah, and, and then, then, then you twist. T- yeah, yeah. And and what I and yes, you're getting the twist to get more power. Yeah. But and this is why Federer always ace Roddick way more, is because it disguises where the serve is gonna go. It's harder to see if I'm gonna go down the I line, mean, the, uh, down the T or if I'm gonna go out
1: wide. Very few amateurs are able to pick up where you're going. Like like the the thing that you're getting is the increased power from really twisting your shoulders. We No amateur is going to predict where your ball is going, right? Every once in a while, I can kind of go, oh, this is summing up to go forehand corner, middle, whatever. But mm-hmm. for the most part, we're not able to do that. But but this is critical. This twisting the shoulders after the toss is
0: huge. Yeah, and I actually one, one tactic that I use that gets me a lot of aces yeah. is I'll start every time. Whenever I hit a second serve, it's always a kick. And for the most part, it's to the backhand. end. And yeah. I'll, I'll do that for the beginning of the match. Yeah. So they're like, okay, oh, I'm, it's second serve, I'm getting backhand. Oh, second serve, I'm getting backhand. And then I throw in the slice. For a second serve. For the second serve, the other direction. And they're already re- leaning the mm-hmm. other way. And so I get a lot of second serve aces off of uh, them, not, you know, thinking it's coming one way, and but it's actually coming the other way. Mm. And then once I do it once, they're like, oh, shit, you know, I got to start coming back on this side a little bit, which makes my backhand kick serves more effective mm. and then you know always throw it in and then later in the match then i start to throw it in a little bit in a little bit more later See, but in the beginning it's only kick to the back to kind of set a baseline that's good
1: in that you're thinking about it the match you your serving strategy is a holistic thing i find myself get to the line and only think about that moment what is the serve that will be most effective for me right now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and most of the time, the serving to the backhand. Most of the,
0: most people, the backhand is weaker. You'll be surprised. <clears throat> You'll be surprised how many people yeah have shit forehand returns because no, they, know. they're used to hitting open stance. They're not getting inside of it, and for the most part, people are serving to the backhand. Mm-hmm. And another serve tactic that I use mm-hmm. is one game, I'll just only serve to the forehand. Because everybody's always expecting a little bit more to the backhand. Mm-hmm. But if you just do the forehand every single time, the first one, maybe they get it. The second time, they're like, okay, whatever. The second, the third time you hit to their forehand in a row, they get kind of shook. And then the fourth time, they kind of like making readjustments to get kind of back into it. And then by the fifth time, uh, they get used to it. And then at that point, you know, after six serves, we'll see where the game is. Mm. But if I can close it out before deuce, I'll just go all to the... Mm forehand and it it shakes people because now you're like wait why because also people you're kind of like testing their uh you're testing their ego by saying like you have like they think i have a better forehand and they start to think like why this why is this guy keep serving to my forehand it's my better side and then you keep serving it to their forehand like oh yeah sure i'll show you why it's my better side and they try to do it and then they they Hmm. and then you start to like if it's not their better side or if they make it like one or two mistakes then You've planted a seed that's going to slowly, you know, grow It's like, you know, making them start to think about their forehand when r- players, you don't really want to think too much when you're playing. You just want to, you just want to play. You know, you're not thinking about the stroke, you're thinking about where you want to hit it. Right. But right. then you start hitting to the same, you know, picking on something like that. You can, you start, then they start to question certain things like that. Okay. So that's another, like, a serve strategy that I have. Uh... Rather than just like coming up to the to the I
1: know, I should be more holistic. I but then the moment comes. Then I think about I saw a statistic on breakpoints and game points, Djokovic plays to the backhand way more. So I'm like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. But um I don't know, it's tricky. Uh
0: to wrap up I want to ask you who is your US Open prediction for men and women's? who are who, who, instead of who you're, who's your prediction, who are the key players to look out for this US Open?
1: Well, those are two different questions. I mean the second question, I, I don't know it's that's too, it's too broad. I mean I know who I look look uh, who, I'm, who are
0: you looking out for? I mean,
1: you know I want to see Ben Shelton, I want to see Chris Eubanks do well. You know, I love Sinner. I love Shepovalov. You know, obviously, you know, we all love Alcaraz. You know, curious to see what any of those guys do, how they're, because they're still writing their stories. Who are they going to be? Are they going to be, you know, elite, but middle of the road elite, you know, or are they going to break through when one, you know, I mean, we thought Sinner might become the tip-top Of the elite he seems like he's trending toward being secondary you know and not being one of those dominant figures Um, but you know I love him I want to see him break through you know I mean I think we are currently in a big two realistically Right. We have not seen Medvedev return to his top level Mm -hmm. since the middle of the match in Australia. Right. Like he's 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 been lower for himself. But, you know, I mean, the guy is disgusting. I think he could reach a level where shit nobody can beat him on that day. But it's probably Alcaraz or Djokovic. Right. Mm -hmm. Every Grand Slam right now is probably Alcaraz or Djokovic.
0: I kind of like Medvedev. I was I was watching him play a little bit because mm-hmm. uh, also don't forget he, he won at that clay court tournament out of nowhere. I think it was Rome, I and then he uh, he's playing the semis right now of the Montreal.
1: But he doesn't. What he does well does not bother Alcaraz and Djokovic.
2: True.
0: Yeah, I think he plays into Alcaraz and Djokovic.
1: Those I, two guys are extraordinary. You know, obviously the best of all worlds would be them in the finals. You know, twenty million people Another would watch. Rematch. It would be an epic uh, Sunday. Probably that happens. They, I mean, they. I think we are back to a situation where we have a small group at the top, and then there's sort of a moat, and then there's the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And you know, do we? Do you really? Would you put money on somebody else? defeating one of the two of them before the finals. Probably not.
0: Probably not. I wouldn't. Don't gamble, though. It's very bad. Why not? I don't like to gamble. Gambling is fun. I used to gamble. I stopped. It's very exciting. It is very exciting. It can cause depression. It can. (laughs) It can
1: also cause fun and excitement. It can make a boring game something very interesting. Why the fuck do you think there's anybody outside of the Midwest, watching Boise State versus North Dakota State.
0: What is, what's the biggest bet you've placed? Because it sounds like you've...
1: Um, that's a great question.
0: Um, and then I'm going to tell you a, a crazy story. I. That's a great question. I don't know. I,
1: you know, I'm a very, I'm very disciplined as far as I have a unit, and I place down that unit. Mm-hmm. And we don't, don't do more because i'm more certain that this is going to happen like that's ridiculous so you know i don't know there was once i try you know (laughs) if you're going to do strategy you have to really do it this guy talked about he bet on every underdog in the ncaa tournament Mm -hmm. and i was like okay i'm going to try that but then when it came time to do it i got shy as far as I bet most of the underdogs but then the ridiculous underdogs I skipped obviously no, no. Appalachia State's not going to beat Duke so I won't <laughs> put the $20 on that right I'll, I'll take off the four mo- least, but then one of them hits and you don't participate and that's how the strategy works that you are in on the 5,000 to 1 shots and one of them comes in mm-hmm. but if you were like that's never going to happen and you don't bet like You know, but uh, uh, that so yeah, that was a big project, but it kind of failed because I was like, I didn't do it right.
0: So, the craziest story I want to tell you is it's a tennis gambling related story. Actually, I have a few of them, but I don't know if I'm gonna spill those on the podcast because they're like some pretty crazy ones like mob related and what. Mob related? Mob related. What are you talking about? What do you know about the mob? Uh, I'm not going to mention any names or locations, but I'm just going to say, when I was a junior, I used to practice with the son of a guy who ran one of the largest gambling rings in the world, and and got investigated by the FBI and is in prison, Uh, and a big part of it was uh, match fixing, and and that was big in tennis. Yeah. Wait, um, I mean, how
1: it, big are you, do you think the match fixing was? And you think it's in it's past?
0: No, I think I think it's still current. Really? I mean Gaston, did you see the stunt he pulled? No. So he did he did two things. One, he like purposely took a ball out of his pocket in the middle of a point to try to get a let when he was about to lose the point, but they let the point ride ride. Another person won it, but he got fined like hundred twenty grand for that. And then, maybe like a couple weeks ago, he was playing this uh, 250. That's not cheating.
1: That's not match-fixing. He's trying to win the point. Match-fixing means you're trying to lose the match.
0: Or, so it's very... So let me tell you the other thing. So that was like one little kind of like sketchy thing. You know, it's just something... Yeah. It's like a flag on his record. Like, that was kind of weird. Okay. Because uh, you never see that. Fast forward, like a like, a couple weeks ago, he was playing this 250. He was down love forty on the guy's serve. Yeah. Match point. This yeah. guy has three match points, and he retires.
1: Gaston retired with match point.
0: No, he was down match point. He was about to right. lose the match. And I he mean, that's
1: that's that bad sportsmanship. That's not match fixing. Of we course. know that match fixing has occurred. How big are do you think that it has been? I mean, like I am trying to lose the match because somebody said if you lose the match, I will give you this amount of money.
0: It's not, it's not, so here's, here's the missing conception when it comes to match fixing, because you bet on sports, you could bet on the winner, you could bet on how many sets, how many games, the total games over, under, and so if you know that you need to, and it's not even that, it's also, you need to lose the, you, you, you know, there's live betting on points. Absolutely. You, you need to lose the third point of the fifth game of the first set, and we'll give you $50,000
1: that's incredibly risky
0: and it's just and it's that subtle it's that subtle betting on
1: a point is ridiculous because all you have
0: to do is just double fault
1: I I know right like I mean like we said Djokovic Federer and Adal they're still losing 45 50% of the points in a match so I mean like so it's a that's a real crapshoot
0: but like but it's because the the people who organize it they they place a bet on the on whatever it is so for them it's no risk because they know, unless the person doesn't do it,
1: that's what I'm saying. I mean, like I and so I, I what I could try. Like, what what if you told me to lose that point? He's serving you he double faults. What am I supposed to do? I had never had a chance.
0: So we would need to be like on the person serve. Uh, but
1: how do you? But you how you how do you know that before the match? How can we communicate during the match?
0: Because I tell you, let's say your third service game double fault on the second point, the third time yeah. on your third service game double fault on the second point.
1: I or, mean, or make sure
0: you get broken in your third service game.
1: You say that happens a lot.
0: I'm not saying it happens. We a know lot.
1: people have said, "I will lose. You're going to pay me the, more than I would to win." Yeah. So I will lose this match. Yeah. And but, we've seen people who are like you shouldn't be losing that match, and they did.
0: Yeah, and it's the. I mean, they're very strict. There's a no. There's a zero tolerance, t- tolerance policy.
1: But you say you know also, it happened a lot. Are you saying it happens a lot?
0: Um. Uh, I can't say how much it knows a lot because I, I don't I don't have any like uh, person like like uh, personal accounts of it. This is, uh, you know, he, you know, he say she say, but when I'm, I'm but I do have like this is what I've heard from like the, the community that was around because like everybody knew this guy and that's how he would make so much money is like you know just one point one game one set just lose the first set you could win the match but just lose the first set or you know make sure the total games is over you know 15 right right you know like subtle things like this right uh that i can't speak to how often it happens i just know that it does and it there's a lot there's things that fly under the radar Crazy. It's you know you just and and it's and when they do the investigation, I think Gaston is going to be investigated for that because that was just like way too sus for him to retire on match point like that because. He, but match I, point against. Like he probably he probably didn't. He was supposed to win a certain amount of games, or he, uh, like something in the scoreline. I don't think it was like maybe the the entire match itself, but yeah. just something was not didn't line up. And so, if he retires, it's going to count as a default, and the match is not going to be recorded. So, any bets that are placed on that match are nullified. And so, he's going to be investigated for, like, yo, who have you been talking to for the last few months? Who do you know? You know, hmm, you know look at your call history. Like, who have you spoken to in the last, you know, certain amount because of
1: time? Because he retired, bets are nullified, but nobody yeah. wins if, he's nulli- if it's nullified.
0: Yeah. And so that means that somebody, I'll let, somebody this is told, hypothetically. I'm making, somebody
1: told him during the match.
0: No, it was a prearranged, That he would. That he was supposed to maybe get a certain amount of games or set or win the match or something like that. Like if you win this match, I'll give you one hundred thousand dollars. And he. But that's not one. how it
1: goes. We give you money to lose the match. You are. To lose, are we never to, wouldn't give you to money a to a win. Maybe he didn't win enough games. You can't, can't control that. You can't control winning. You can control losing. You can guarantee you're going to lose. It's there, you cannot guarantee you're going to win.
0: There's a lot of, it's it has to do with like the it could have been the scoreline, for example, like.
1: No, I get, I get it, I get it. Not, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. We're talking about possibilities.
0: Possibilities. Maybe's. Um, but that was an interesting. Oh, so the actually the tennis gambling story. There is a. Also, I don't want to really use names because there's some high-profile, a high-profile person is involved. A John celebrity, Gaudi. Huh? John Gotti. No,
1: <laughs> <laughs> It's the most like <laughs> solemn. N- no, like,
0: <laughs> of course not. What the fuck! It has to. It's a famous celebrity singer. Uh, Can you it's tell a me guy. Who it is? I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the the full story. Afterwards. But uh, so this celebrity, huge tennis fan, made a bet with my friend. Uh, My friend is a huge uh, Nadal fan, and he's like, I bet that Nadal, and this is like maybe five, six years ago, Mm -hmm. I bet Nadal is going to break Federer's record in Grand Slams. Mm -hmm. Ever. All time. All time. Mm -hmm. He's going to break 20. I'll put 10 grand on this. And, he start, and you know, there, it started off as just kind of like bullshitting, you know, talking. He's like, oh yeah, you think that? You know, let's, let's make a bet. So, all right, 10 grand. The dolls is, uh, and this is also kind of like, they bet so much money because it's also a long period of time. Like, it's kind of, it's not just kind of like a quick thing. Uh, so, he gets to 20. The doll gets to 20. And my friend is like, yo, you gotta, you know, you're gonna pay up if he wins one more. And then this guy was like, nah, Nadal's not winning any more Grand Slams. Double it. Let's double it. You know, the celebrity uh, celebrity wanted to double it. When Nadal was one Grand Slam away. My friend's like, sure, let's go. (laughs) This is, is, Yeah. Nadal wins it. Wins another Grand Slam. I forget which one. And so now this celebrity owes my friend 20 grand. Yeah. And refuses to pay it. Not refuses to pay it. What can you do? But what my friend said is they got into a uh, political argument, and they kind of like had a falling out. They stopped talking, and and my friend thinks that this guy did it, so he didn't have to pay up, which is allegedly you know whatever. Lame. Yeah, pay your bets. Uh, and yeah, so that's how. My friend is... Uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you who it is. You're going to be shocked. John Cusack? You, I'm telling you, you were never going to see this coming.
1: Leonardo DiCaprio?
0: No. No. You, even, you, you are going to be... A good
1: actor or just an okay actor? Singer. Singer. Artist. Oh, it's a singer.
0: It's a guy as well. That's all I'll say. Anyway, so I think that wraps it up. For this episode of the Tips of Tennis Podcast, uh, we talked about a lot of great things. We talked a little bit about your tennis background, they already heard it. my tennis background. We're
1: summing it up. They already heard it. Uh, <laughs> they yeah, already heard they it. We're to be summing
0: up now. It's too late now.
1: <laughs> well. So we're going to tell them what we already told them. Yes. They know recap. what we told
0: them. Uh, quick announcements. Some housekeeping stuff. What? I got to be here for this? Yes. Why? Because I need you on camera to say that you're going to come to my U.S. Open party. (laughs) I can't promise you that. Where? Who all going to be there? September 10th. I'm hosting a tipsy tennis viewing party for the U.S. Open men's finals 4 p.m. Sunday. It's also Super Bowl Sunday. But this is the cooler thing. There's gonna be like a hundred people there.
1: The ah. US Open Finals is the same day as the Super Bowl?
0: Not Super Bowl. NFL Sundays, the season starts. Mm, I yeah. got it. Day one. Day one. Not the last day, the first day. Uh, so September 5th. Please check. Uh, there'll be announcements on that on social media. September. Follow me on September Instagram. 10th. Tipsy Tennis Podcast. September 10th. September 10th. You said 5th, say 10th. September 10th. Where? venue to be determined, but most likely in Lower East Side, Manhattan.
1: You know, there's a lot of things happening at TBD. It's like half the events I know of are taking place at TBD. It's, it's TBD. TBD to, to be, be determined. determined. It's amazing. I
0: have a, I'm have. going to have a venue locked in probably by Tuesday. No, you should name a venue to TBD. be determined. Oh, we're going to TBD. Where is it? TBD. TBD. No one will ever show up. No you you never told me where I told you where
1: it was. That's a terrible it's business It's CBD. Model.
0: What are you talking about?
1: You, oh, my God. It sounds
0: like a speakeasy. Oh. You got to, like, knock a certain amount of times. So. Good idea. Anyway, follow me on Instagram at Tipsy Tennis Podcast. Follow Toure at Toure Show. If you want to get some awesome content from him as well. Until next time on The Kind of Three, we're going to say stay tipsy. Do we have to? <laughs> We're gonna say "Stay Tipsy" together. Yes. Really? It's corny, but it's so I do it every, corny. Every episode, I got I got a couple pros doing it as well. Who got Who did it? Uh, Miguel Varela, uh, uh Miguel Reyes Varela. He's like seventy in the world in doubles. Very impressive. You on that? So, ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. Stay tipsy. Stay tipsy. Oh, it's late. <laughs>
1: Good shit, thank you. That was fun.
0: Oh shit, it wasn't...
2: Shut your fuck up, okay?